Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for, for letting me be here. I'm excited to be able to preach God's Word to you. Uh, God, we'll, we'll be studying Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and I'm only going to focus on verse 32, but I'm going to read from Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 22 through 32. Uh, but the, the sermon is going to focus in on verse 32, and I'm, I'm actually going to take a Genesis to Revelation look at what verse 32 means. And so I'm going to be using a lot of scripture, so uh, get your Bibles out and, and, and follow along with me. But we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it instructs us in all that we need to know for life and godliness. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, loved you perfectly with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved his neighbor as he loved himself all the way into death on the cross and rose triumphantly from the grave to purchase a people for himself, a bride. Father, we thank you that you've called us to be a part of that bride. We pray, Father, you would send your spirit upon us now that you would teach us what it means to be the bride of the Lord Jesus, that we would have eyes to see the glory and the beauty of our precious Savior, that you would work in our hearts, that you would humble us, Lord, that you would save sinners, that you would be glorified. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The world rings with the sound of praises for the lover and the beloved. The world loves romance stories, and they often put those stories into words of song. One popular song on the radio these days is by a band called Lifehouse. And the words go like this, And it's you and me and all other people, and I don't know why I can't keep my eyes off of you. There's something about you. I can't quite figure it out. Everything she does is beautiful. Everything she does is right. And so lovers love to sing about one another. And, and, and the truth is, every, every romance like that 
in the human realm, every faithful marriage is a pointer to a greater romance, to a greater, more satisfying, everlasting romance. And that romance is none other than Christ and his bride, the church. One pastor, Raymond Ortland Jr., has written a book called God's Unfaithful Wife, A Biblical Theology of Spiritual Adultery. And he writes this, Marriage is not just another mutation of human social evolution like democracy. It is a divine creation intended to reveal the ultimate romance guiding all of time and eternity. See, there's an ultimate romance guiding all of time and eternity. He goes on, And this is why every faithful and loving marriage is precious to God. It shines with the light of Christ's love for his people and of their devotion to him in the darkness of this present evil age. Pastorally, the biblical story lifts up before us a vision of God as our lover. The gospel sounds the voice of our husband who has proven his love for us and who calls for our undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us, an infinite joy to offer us, and he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, angry, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with a love which cleanses our lives of all spiritual whoredom. And so the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Throughout redemptive history, the church as the bride of the Lord and of Christ is one of the most vivid and intimate pictures of the saints' relationship with the Lord. This metaphor ultimately points to the union that all believers enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessed communion that the church corporately will enjoy with her most glorious spouse for all eternity. And so I want to look at this in three points. Number one, I want to look at the marriage metaphor in general. Number two, God's unfaithful bride. And then finally, number three, the faithful bride of Christ. So one, the marriage metaphor in general. Number two, God's unfaithful bride. And number three, the faithful bride of Christ. So first of all, the marriage metaphor. The first marriage, I said the Bible began with a marriage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve. And he said when he created Adam, it was not good for man to be alone. And he made Eve, a woman, to be a helpmate for Adam. And, and my, one of the questions I've always had about this is, was, was God not enough for Adam? You know, Adam was a sinless human being. He had fellowship with the Father. And yet, the Father said it's not good for Adam to be alone. Was God not enough for Adam? And as one brother in a former church helped me see, it's not that God was not enough, it's that God was more than enough. God was more than enough. 
One of my professors in seminary said, said this, in the male-female difference in relationship, we find a richer expression of God's image than would be the case if man were merely male or merely female. And so God has chosen to display himself more fully to us in the male-female relationship. And he's done that in marriage. How, how does this relationship of marriage, how is it a fitting metaphor for God's relationship with his people? Well, number one, it is a, a picture of a supreme, exclusive love and commitment. A supreme, exclusive love and commitment. In Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Ortland writes about this. If in marrying a man withdraws his primary allegiance from his parents and redirects it to his wife so that they enter into a one flesh existence, how much more does this distinguish marriage from all other relationships as well? Marriage is so profound a union that not only may one put one's wife ahead of all others, one must do so. One must do so. So there is a supreme, exclusive love commitment in the marriage union that comes before any other relationship on earth. More than mother, more than father, more than children. The best thing that couples can do for their children is love one another deeply, intimately, exclusively, and passionately. That relationship takes precedence all other over all other human relationships. And God expects that of his relationship with us. This is in the Bible. This is Luke 14, 26. Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying there? When he's told us numerous other places to to love one another, even love your enemies. And he says here, if you don't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying in, in the most powerfully provocative way that the love that you must have for him and him alone is so great that all other loves in comparison to the, most, the things you might most cherish in this world, even family, comparatively almost seem like hatred when you compare it to the love that you must have for Christ and Christ alone. So you see, the love that we must have for Christ is supreme. It is exclusive It is paramountly for him. And all other relationships come under that love. I've often thought about writing a book on marriage, and I would title it, Hate Your Wife, The Key to the Most Enduring Happy Marriage. (laughs) And I would take it from this verse. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're going to love your wife rightly, if you're going to lay down your life for her and sacrificially serve her day in and day out, 
you must supremely love Christ more than her. You must supremely love Christ more than her. And when you love him and put him first, oh my, you will be a lover of lovers. You will be the greatest lover of your wife when you put Christ first. Jesus said it in a less provocative way in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, so marriage is, as I said, a supreme exclusive relationship. Love relationship, and that is exactly what God expects of his people. Are you loving Jesus this way? Is there anything in your life? Maybe you could look at the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the things that you look at, the things that you read, the things that you you love and cherish, the things that make you happiest or make you saddest, and ask the question, Is this getting in the way of my love for Christ? Because he will have all your love. He is a jealous lover. Secondly, marriage teaches us that there should be passionate affection. There should be passionate affection in marriage. There should be passionate affection for Christ. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Again, this is in the Bible. People don't believe me uh, when I read it, but it is in the Bible. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19 says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated in her love. Be drunk with the love of your wife. Be drunk with the love of your spouse that's what god expects in marriage not just in the beginning all the time all the time how 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 are your marriages are you drunk with one another's love i've often thought of my relationship with the lord and how i have to often fight for joy in him because my heart is sinful and it's distracted by other things. It's not like we talked about with David. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. It's often divided on other things. And I have to beg the Lord, Father, please give me an undivided heart. Make you alone to be my supreme joy and pleasure and treasure. I have to beg him for that. I have to fight for that joy in him by reading his word and begging him in prayer and being around like-minded brothers and sisters who can spur me on to love Christ passionately that way. Well, it's this, and if that's true for me to love an infinite, perfect, glorious, beautiful God, how much more do you think you might have to fight for that in marriage where you're married to a finite, sinful person? You've got to fight for this intoxication. You've got to beg God for it. And maybe some of you are in hard marriages right now and it's just not there. Well, our God is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the resurrection. And he can give you this back. He can give you this passionate affection back in your marriages as you fight for it and seek the Lord for it and go to his word for it and beg him for mercy. And we see throughout scripture godly men and women delighting passionately in God this way. 
Psalm 63, 1, the psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We see the psalmist panting after God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, oh God. Do you ever pant that way for the Lord? You know, young people, you, 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 those of you who are, who are in high school and, and below, I grew up in a church and, and I would come to church, but I wanted to get out of church and go home and I was looking forward to what I could do later. I didn't come to church because I panted after God or I loved God or I was interested in God. And guess what? I was lost. I was on my way to hell because I didn't know this God because if I knew this God, my heart would pant for him. He's not a boring God. And so I ask you today, does your heart pant for God? With passionate affection. Third, there's headship involved in marriage. And that gives us a picture of the relationship that we have with God. Men should lead, provide for, and protect their wives. And this human relationship is a little parable of God leading, providing for, and protecting his people. I'm going to move faster on these last ones. Fourth, submission is involved. Wives are to submit to their husbands and affirm their leadership. This human relationship, again, is a little parable of how we, the church, are to submit to God in everything. And so we cry out to God, even in the hardest situations that we face, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That, that should be our greatest desire. We submit to God. Fifth, sacrifice. Jesus said in Mark eight thirty four. Calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We learn sacrifice in marriage. One wise lady told me yesterday that she thought you could sum up marriage and, and, and the marriage counseling in, in one phrase death to self. Death to self. And so we sacrifice, we give to one another. We deny ourselves for the sake of the other and how God has done that for us in Christ. He sent his own son, the son whom he loved and sacrificed this most precious treasure in the universe that we might be forgiven and saved. God has made the ultimate sacrifice. Sixth and finally, forgiveness. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 Paul exhorts us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so we forgive one another in marriage when we sin against one another, and we do so because God in Christ has forgiven us. So that is why the marriage metaphor is such a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Now I want to look at the scriptures to actually see this relationship unfold from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So point number two, God's unfaithful bride. God's covenant with Israel, his people, was a marriage covenant. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 gives us a beautiful picture of this marriage covenant of God entering into a marriage covenant with his people Israel. 
Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So you had this beautiful picture of this, this pagan, right? Born of, of a Hittite, of an Amorite. Born in its blood, cast out, despicable, abhorred, wallowing in blood. And then God comes by and says, live. And, and this child lives and grows to the time of love. And God covers over and enters into a covenant of marriage with this child and makes her beautiful. This is a picture of what God did with Israel as he called her to be his own. We read about it in Jeremiah 31. 31 through 32, when God says about the covenant he made when he brought his people out of Egypt, he says, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Or Isaiah 54, 5, God declares, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so God was committed to Israel as a husband to a wife to love her, to cherish her, to care for her, to make her beautiful by pouring into her. And yet, what does Israel do? What does she do on her very wedding night? She commits adultery. Can you imagine that? Committing adultery on your honeymoon? And so when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and brings them back down, what is Israel doing? She's pr playing the prostitute, the whore, with other gods. She's worshiping a golden calf. And over and over we see this in Israel's history. And the prophets use that kind of language. She whored after other gods. She was unfaithful from the very beginning. And God told her that she would be. Deuteronomy 
5.29, God pleads, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Or Deuteronomy 29.4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart. He's talking to Israel. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then finally, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So God told Moses, he told the people of Israel, you're going to go after other gods. You're going to commit adultery against me. And if you go back to Ezekiel 16, if we kept reading after verse 14 and continue in verse 15, we read this, Ezekiel 16, 15, but you trusted in your beauty. You see, God had given them this glorious beauty through his own splendor, and yet they trusted in their beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been or never shall be. And this is a refrain in Israel's history over and over and over again. We even see in the book of Hosea, God commands the prophet Hosea to go marry an unfaithful woman as a picture of Israel's history with their God that they over and over again are unfaithful to the Lord their God. And yet, even in this book of Hosea, there is a future hope. There's a future hope that there's going to be a new covenant relationship with God and his people. One that will never end. One that will be faithful and eternal. And Hosea writes about it in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 and 19 through 20. Hosea writes this, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal was one of the main gods that they played the whore with over and over again. No longer will they call God my Baal. They'll call him husband. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Ortland says this, a fresh betrothal, as if Israel were starting out again as a pure virgin, is set before the corrupted nation as their future hope. The ugly past will be forgotten and they will start over again as if nothing had ever gone wrong. I wonder how many of you here, as you listened to those first points that I went through on what marriage is supposed to be, and as I spoke about the relationship you're to have with God and and with your spouse, you felt utterly condemned. I haven't done that. I don't cherish God this way. I'm not passionately, single-mindedly, single-heartedly committed to Him. I haven't sacrificed for my friends and my family. I've been very selfish. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son 
who was perfectly passionate for his father, who was single-mindedly and heartily devoted to him, who was perfectly sacrificial and loving and committed, and he died on a cross. And he bore the wrath of God that you deserve for all your sin. And he rose up from the grave so that if you repent and believe this gospel, you shall be saved. And the word to you will be, it will be as if nothing had ever gone wrong. No matter what you've done in your past, how many sins you've committed, how many people you've slept with, you've been divorced, you've had failed relationships, whatever you've done, Jesus' word to you is the vilest of sinners who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That's the good news of the new covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ortland goes on, he says, And unlike the first marriage, which was such a disaster that it could not be salvaged, this new marriage will last forever. For Yahweh will impart to Israel a new moral character. Israel will not again betray her divine husband. Instead, she will know the Lord in personal communion. How will this happen? I gave you a little preview, but let's look at the final point, the faithful bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to purchase a bride for himself. And the first step in that purchasing was that he was wedded to human flesh. The first step in that grand, victorious rescue romance was his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in his earthly ministry, Jesus himself speaks of himself as the bridegroom. So in Mark 2, 18 through 20... We read this, Mark 2, 18 through 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. But do you see how Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom? The bridegroom's here. I'm with my disciples. They're not going to fast while I'm with them. John the Baptist as well refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. In John 3, 28 through 30, John says this, you yourself bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, the bridegroom, Jesus, must increase, but I, John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom, must decrease. So Jesus testifies that he's the bridegroom. John, the greatest prophet who ever lives, testifies that Jesus is the bridegroom. And Jesus came, the great bridegroom, the greatest bridegroom who's ever lived. He comes and what happens? His bride rejects him. His bride rejects him. To win his bride, Jesus had to be rejected by her. And so we read, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and not esteemed. Jesus, the Son of Man, had to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Jesus had no place to lay his head. 
He came to his own, but the scripture says his own did not receive him. He was betrayed by one of the twelve who were supposed to be the closest ones to him. Judas betrayed this great son of man. His closest friends, the disciples, in his greatest time of need, they forsook him and fled. Peter, one of the inner three, denied Jesus three times with cursing and swearing. And yet this Jesus, this perfect one, this beautiful one, this glorious, sinless one was made sin and crushed in our place by the one he loved the most, his heavenly father. In one sense, he heard his own father say on the cross, depart from me, I've counted you as an evildoer and reckoned you to be the most vile and wicked sinner. Go and endure an infinite punishment under my just condemnation and wrath. I abandon you. Be gone. As we sang the song earlier, how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away and wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Maybe there are some of you here visiting and you've never heard the gospel message. This is all new to you. You see, God who created all things, who created you, he created you to live for his glory, to obey him, to serve him, to love him. And the Bible says that we've all failed to do this. We have sinned against this holy God. We have failed to love him exclusively and passionately. We have sinned against his commandments. And because he is a holy and a righteous God, he must punish sin and sinners. He must because he's holy. And yet God loved this wicked, rebellious world so much that he sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who never disobeyed. And he punished Jesus on that cross for the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. So that if you today would turn from your sin, it's like you're running towards sin, you turn 180 degrees and turn toward God, and you believe in him, then that sacrifice, that sacrifice on the cross, it counts for you. And you're free from condemnation forever. Your sins are forgiven. You get the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, and he accepts you as his dear child. If you don't know this truth, believe him. And he gives you wonderful promises. Wonderful promises that if you trust him, though your sins were like scarlet, they're as white as snow. He casts them behind his back and remembers them no more. He puts them all on the ocean floor. As far as the east is from the west, he removes your transgressions from you if you will simply repent and believe this gospel. And Christ rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and Satan. He's the only one who's alive, who rose from the dead, the only religious leader who's alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. All the world leaders, they will die. They have died and will die. Jesus is alive. He is alive and he conquered sin, death, and Satan on our behalf. And he won for himself a precious bride that he's calling out from all the nations now. And Paul even speaks of this this people that God has called out in 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Paul says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you, church, for I betrothed you to one husband 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's amazing. Who was the one husband in the Old Testament? I read from you Isaiah 54. It was the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That signifies God's covenant name. It was Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. And who does Paul say the one husband is? Christ, Jesus. Yahweh, come in the flesh. Jesus is our great husband. And one of the greatest blessings that we have in Christ is our union with him. Union with Christ. One very old Puritan catechism called the Westminster Larger Catechism asks questions and then answers those questions to help you learn about doctrine. And the question on union with Christ says this, what is the union which the elect have with Christ? The answer, the union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace whereby they are spiritually and mystically yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband which is done in their effectual calling. You see, they even use that language. The Puritans loved to glory in their husband Christ. Sometimes when I preach this sermon, especially the men will get sort of uptight because talking about a love relationship with Jesus and he's a man and I'm a man and that sort of sounds homosexual. You have to understand this in terms of heavenly gender. God Almighty has said that the church is feminine. The church is a bride. And these Puritans wrote about this and they delighted in this. And let me assure you, these Puritans were manly men. I mean, they were men's men, like aren't alive today. J.I. Packer called the Puritans the great redwoods, those big Californian trees that are huge. You can't get your arms around them and go up way into the sky. Those were the Puritans, right? They were men. They weren't girly men, and they loved to delight in Jesus as their husband. So don't be put off by that. Take God's Declaration on you, men, as feminine in the sense that you are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he purchased. Now, we have great blessings in this union, and I want to go to Martin Luther to read you those blessings. Listen to what Luther says. Martin Luther was one of the leaders of the Reformation that recaptured the glorious doctrine that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. And Martin Luther wrote this, the third incomparable grace of faith is this, that it unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband, by which mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul are made one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages, is accomplished between them, then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own, and whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims as his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how inestimable is the gain. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. Let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ. And grace, life, and salvation to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. 
Thus, the believing soul, by the pledge of its faith in Christ, becomes free from all sin, fearless of death, safe from hell, and endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of its husband, Christ. Thus, he presents to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, that is, by faith in the word of life, righteousness, and salvation. Thus, he betrothes her unto himself in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness and mercies. Who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ, that rich and pious husband, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him and since she has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, if I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. All mine is his and all his is mine. As it is written, my beloved is mine and I am his. What does that mean? Well, I was at a friend's wedding. I was in the wedding. It was the night before the wedding. And my friend was getting in this really nice car. And we were all sort of amazed at this really beautiful car. And we said, Nick, whose car is this? And he simply replied, tomorrow it's mine. It was his fiance's. The, the car belonged to his fiance, but he said, tomorrow it's mine. And that's, that's simply what Luther's getting at. We have sin and death and hell. Christ has perfect righteousness and eternal glory. When we marry Christ by faith, all our nastiness and vileness and evil iniquity become His. And all His righteousness and beauty and glory becomes ours. There's a sweet exchange there. He bears it on the cross, in His body on the tree, and it's taken away for all eternity. And we are righteous in Him. And yet there is an already not yet aspect to this this betrothal, this marriage. We're, We're wedded to Christ by faith. We're saved by him. And all those glorious things are true of us. And yet we still have indwelling sin. We still fight against the flesh. We still strive to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when that fight will be no more. And we will enjoy a glorious wedding day with our most beautiful savior And there will be no more pain, no more death, no more sin, no more tears. But we will be with him forever. Every Lord's Day, every sermon that you hear, every prayer, every administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism, every home, hospital visit, and every other ministerial duty that you perform, all your growth, God's people, in sanctification... All of it is preparation for a great eternal wedding day. In a very real sense, all the work of the minister and all your growth in sanctification is premarital counseling and is marriage preparation. We read about this marriage in Revelation chapter 19. You're all studying this, so I know you're familiar with it. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, we read of this great consummated wedding day Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the great hope. This is the great hope of every believer and the church as a whole. The final consummation of the long-awaited wedding day where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. I wonder how many of you come here this morning with burdens. Burdens of past failures, burdens of relationships that aren't working out the way that you wished, single people who wish that you were married, who've been waiting and waiting and waiting for years, married people who wish you weren't married, who are in hard marriages and it's driving you crazy and you weep every night because of how hard it is. Children who have brought up in the church and they don't love Jesus and you weep for their salvation. There are physical problems, medical problems, financial problems. And yet this is the great hope that we have. That someday, someday very soon, we will go to be with him. And we will be wedded to him. And all those things will be over. And God will make all things right. He will make all things new. He will wipe away your tears and you will be married to the most satisfying, beautiful, loving, holy, righteous, glorious, sovereign spouse in the universe for all eternity. That's our hope as believers. And this spouse will rejoice over us and sing over us with loud shouts and joy. Isaiah 62.5 speaks of this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jonathan Edwards spoke of this great wedding day when he wrote this. The end or goal of the creation of God was to provide a spouse for his son, Jesus Christ. I love that. God created the world to get a bride for his son who might enjoy him and on whom he might pour forth his love. And the end of all things in providence, every little detail of your life, everything that happens that you don't understand and that causes you to cry and weep in pain, every detail of providence that happens, the good and the bad, are to make way for the exceeding expressions of Christ's love to his spouse and for her exceeding close and intimate union with and high and glorious enjoyment of him and to bring this to pass. And therefore, the last thing and the issue of all things is the marriage of the Lamb. And the wedding day is the last day, the day of judgment. Or rather, that will be the beginning of it. The wedding feast is eternal. And the love and joys, the songs, entertainments, and glories of the wedding never will be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day. This everlasting wedding day is our great hope. And this only exists because the eternal son of the living God was wedded to human flesh and lived among us. Unlike unfaithful Israel, who played the whore against her husband Lord over and over again. And unlike us, who in the same way sin against our Lord, he perfectly obeyed his father all the way into death on the cross. He rose from the dead, and like a mighty, unconquerable warrior husband, he won his bride by slaying sin, death, and Satan. And then finally in Revelation, we see how the end takes place. The two lovers, 
will be joined together in wedded bliss, communing with one another in everlasting ecstasy. And this ought to make us all yearn and cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come now and wrap it all up and take us home to be with you. Exhortation to those of you who are here and are not believers. I use the words of an old revivalist, Gilbert Tennant. He says, Mary Christ and all are yours. All things are yours. Come to him by faith. Believe in him. And you can be saved from the wrath of God in hell forever and ever. And be entering into this wedded bliss that we have with Christ. Exhortation to you who believe the Lord Jesus, who are followers of Christ. Number one, application for the church. The church is Christ's beloved bride. So love her. Care for her. Pour your life and energy and devotion into her. Joshua Harris wrote a book called Stop Dating the Church. You know, joining a church is like getting married. When I was in seminary, I took it very seriously which church I committed to. It's like entering into a marriage covenant where you covenant together with one another. I mean, the Bible is full of one another's in the New Testament. How do you do those one another's faithfully unless you covenant together to live life together and practice those one another's and love one another as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you view one another? Knowing this should shape how you view one another, each person as a blood-bought lamb of the Lord Jesus. You're not only made in the image of God, but, but Jesus Christ bought you. He bought you. He bought you. He bought you. He loved you and gave himself for you. Oh, how we ought to be careful how we speak to one another and love one another and care for one another, knowing that Jesus owns you as his bride. The church across the street who preaches the same gospel that's preached here, we ought to love them and encourage them and pray for them as well. The church abroad in other nations that Christ paid for, we, we, we should help them, love them, pray for them. That the church across the, the, the world would grow and be encouraged and be built up. Application for marriages, I've already made many of those. How is your marriage being a parable of Christ in the church. It should be a little parable of this glorious relationship. As you love one another, husbands, as you lead and protect and provide for and care for your wives and sacrificially serve them as Christ loved the church and wives as you respect and submit to your husbands. It should cry out to your neighbors and friends and family. This is a little picture of Christ and the church. And finally, just application for us as individuals. I love Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so we ought to cultivate this love, delight relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Basic ways to do that, be in his word. Be in his word. One of the fixtures of my life after I graduated from college has been doing a, a Bible through the year, read through the Bible in a year plan. doesn't take long, but, but it, it keeps me constantly communing with my Lord. Think about that. Spurgeon said there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation in it with your finger. Do you love the Word of God? Do you read it? Do you cherish it? As the psalmist did in Psalm 119, better than, than 
thousands of, of pieces of gold and silver. Cultivate a love relationship with the Lord through the Bible and through prayer, through pleading with him. Maybe you're sitting here listening, I don't have this relationship with Jesus. I don't feel this way toward him. Pray for it. Beg God for it. With this last quotation, I'll close. It's by a Puritan named Samuel Rutherford. He longed to know the Lord Jesus. And he says this. This would be a good prayer for all of us. He says, I am most gladly content that Christ breaketh all my idols in pieces. It hath put a new edge upon my blunted love to Christ. I see he is a jealous of all my love and will have all to himself. But let us come near and fill ourselves with Christ and let his friends drink and be drunken and satisfy our hollow and deep desires with Jesus. Oh, come all and drink at this living well. Come drink and live forevermore. Christ, Christ, nothing but Christ can cool our love's burning languor. Oh, thirsty love, will thou set Christ, the well of life, to thy head and drink thy fill? Drink and spare not. Drink love and be drunken with Christ. May he do that in all of us. May he make us drunk with himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you that he was the perfect bridegroom. We thank you, Lord, that in all our failures, he was perfect. Father, we pray that you would grant us faith to look to him and trust in him in the midst of all our sufferings and failures. We pray, oh God, you would forgive us all our sins and cleanse us. We pray you would send your spirit upon us that you would make us drunk with love in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would follow him all our days. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, we pray that you would save them through your spirit and that you would be glorified as we live lives for you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.